This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Tomahome. Hi, I'm Paul. And we're going to talk about new releases and recent arrivals. And we're starting with one that Paul has selected. Yes, this would be Aftermath Star Wars, the journey to the Star Wars The Force Awakens by Chuck Wendig, read by Mark Thompson. About 12 uh, hours, 16 minutes. So, so does it have a lot of F words because it's Chuck Wendig? Uh, actually, I understand. No, it's not. It's not. It's not a curse fest. Uh, let me let me let me read the description. Star Wars Aftermath is the story of the end of the Empire. Just before the blockbuster movie Star Wars, The Force Awakens appears in theaters worldwide. Aftermath will showcase the state of the galaxy right after Star Wars Return of the Jedi, begin bridging the journey into the new territory between Return of the Jedi and The Force Awakens. The second Death Star is destroyed. The Emperor and Darth Vader are rumored to be dead. The Galactic Empire is in chaos. Across the galaxy, some systems celebrate, while in others, Imperial factions tighten their grip. Optimism and fear reign side by side, and while the Rebel Alliance engages the fractured forces of the Empire, a lone Rebel scout uncovers a secret Imperial meeting. I'm imagining the letters going across the space. That's that's good. The crawl, you mean. Yes, the crawl. Um... I know Chuck's gotten grief on a number of fronts for this book. Yeah, I heard him on Geek's Guide, I think it was, uh, talking about how it was getting one-star reviews. And, and a lot of it isn't his fault. I mean, a lot of it is, okay, we're going to reboot this, the post-Return uh, of the Jedi Star Wars universe and all the novels that came before. Well, they didn't happen. And, well, Chuck's now did, now does happen and all that other stuff doesn't and so he's getting grief from that he's getting grief for some of the diversity put into this into mm, this book oh that's right homosexual characters there's homosexual characters there's diversity up down left and sideways and apparently this is <laughs> wrong with some fans who who could accept walking into a bar with 40 kinds of aliens but can't accept a homosexual <laughs> character that is pretty funny uh, yeah i, I think there's a pink there's a pink lightsaber <laughs> Rainbow Lake. Um, <laughs> just, just saying, a certain character played by Samuel Jackson has a purple lightsaber, and is the only character in all of Star Wars has a purple lightsaber. So uh-huh. yeah, so I have no truck with these people who want to hate on Chuck Wendig. I mean, I know some of his stuff isn't to everyone's taste, and that's okay. But to hate him for a showing a diversity in Star Wars, and b because well of the executive decisions and deciding other stuff wasn't canon. That's not, the one's not his fault and the other is, well, I don't want a Star Wars to be just a bunch of white guys and gals. Thank you very much. So, uh, it's read by Mark Thompson, who's, who is a longtime Star Wars guy. That should give the audiobook people at least, like should, some sort of continuity. Yeah, there should be some continuity. I mean, it's not like they got somebody new to read the books. It's some, somebody who's, Who's done this before and is immersed in Star Wars? You think people could calm down? It's not like they're coming into your homes and taking away your uh, your Timothy Zahn books, guys. Mm. Uh, speaking of which, uh, the next title uh, nobody's claimed, but I, I think we should talk about it anyways. Um, 
Heirs of the Empire. It sounds like it's one of those Star Wars books. It, it, that, it does, doesn't it? Wasn't it Heir of the Empire? Was Air, one of the, was that of, the first Heirs of the Empire? Yeah, they, they that that was the. Uh, wasn't that the very first of the post? Uh, yeah, Timothy's on. Yeah, yeah Timothy's right. on. But I believe it was the first of a trilogy, right? So it was right. like this book is positioned to take up all of the. Uh, people who want to rebel against the Star Wars universe. And it even sounds like a Star Wars book. So it says, uh, Heirs to the Empire by Evan Curry and Derek McNish is the reader. Ten hours. And it goes, The Scourwind family legacy brought the Empire to the height of its power and prosperity and defended against all enemies. Now one man's machinations aim to shift the power, uh, the balance of power, with violent and devastating consequences. And then there's an emperor, and there's generals, and there's a gambit, and a pirate named Mira del Sol. I mean, don't doesn't this sound like Star Wars names? Scalawind? It sounds like Star Wars names. Is it, General Torian? Is, totally is, is this space empire? Is this space or... Not noticeably part of a series, it says. It says Planetary Kingdom. Oh, yeah, it sounds like a Star Wars book. Oh, there's also, so I went to Google, there's also a 1996 David Weber novel called Heirs of Empire. Apparently this is a very popular title name. <laughs> but I think it's very appropriate just for oh, the... Oh, here we go. Uh, I, I, found it, I found it on uh, Amazon. That uh, looks looks uh, science fiction-y. I mean, mm-hmm. she's standing on a bridge. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely science fiction-y. It's, it's space opera-y. I mean, uh, it, it's Star Warsy. It's Star Warsy. Mm-hmm. Why is it? Wow, it's uh oh oh, it's a Forty Seven North novel. Okay, published by Amazon itself. So the next one is not Star Warsy. Oh. Nope. It is. No, that's better. That's nope. a good thing, Dan. No, it's it, it it's our friend Luke Daniels reading the Three Stigmata of Palmo Eldritch by Philip K. Dick. Mm-hmm. Which, which, and notice how short it is. Seven hours, Just 43 seven. minutes. Yeah. That's so nice. I mean, the, the new Star Wars novel has to be 12 hours long. This one's about half that. On, on Mars, the harsh climate can make any colonist turn to drugs to escape their dead-end existence, especially when the drug is Candy, which transports its users into the idyllic world of a Barbie-esque character named Perky Hat. When the mysterious Palma Eldritch arrives with a new drug called Choosy, he offers a more addictive experience, one that might bring the user closer to God. But in a world where everyone is tripping, no promises can be taken at face value. This Nebula Award nominee is one of Philip K. Dick's enduring classics, and with a deep character study, a dark mystery, and a tightrope walk along the edge of reality and illusion. In other words, Philip K. Dick hitting on all cylinders. Mm. At, so, at some point, you, me, and Marissa are going to read and review Absolutely. this one. So. Got to. Yep. And um... Sounds trippy. Yeah, yeah I, what do you expect? I think, yeah, I, I think I've read this, but I don't remember it all that well. So you, you're, you're thinking it's a really good book, right? Oh yeah, it's it, it it's got it's it's in its it's in its higher canon from what I remember. It'll, it'll be interesting I, on the re these rereads we've been doing, and listeners, yes, if you should look at the archives, me, Jesse, and Marissa have been rereading lots of Philip K. Dick. It'll be interesting how we react to it going through it the second time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think I read this as a kid, but I don't really. It's it. it would be really trippy as a kid. I think it's 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 really weird. That's what I remember about it. It it just assumes 
so much that you, like you've read a lot of sort of Philip K. Dick and got into how his mind works. But he, I guess all of his stories are kind of like that. They just assume that you're in with him on board and ready to go. Which is not, uh, I feel like a lot of uh, the stuff that comes out, it's like, no, we have to teach you all of science fiction in the first three chapters. So you understand. He just like goes straight into it and he's done. Right? <laughs> you're just going along with it. It's, it's, we- it's very weird compared to, I don't know, new books that come out. I don't know. I think it's just because it's from that era where everybody was doing that. They just assume you're a genre reader and you've been following and reading all of the genre fiction. Drop them if you got them. Now, uh, I have not read this one, uh, but I think one must read this one because it's by H.G. Wells, the guy who invented science fiction, In the Days of the Comet. And... Uh, it's read by Walter Koval, 8 hours, 34 minutes, and it reads like this. A comet speeds towards Earth, a deadly glowing orb that soon fills the sky and promises doom. But mankind is too consumed with greed and violence to care. As luminous green trails of cosmic dust and vapor stream across the heavens, blood flows beneath. Nations wage all-out war, bitter strikes erupt, and jealous lovers plot revenge and murder. The earth slips past the comet by the narrowest of margins, but all succumb to the gases in its tail. When the man, when mankind wakes up, everyone is completely and profoundly different. In the days of the comet is H.G. Wells' classic tale of the last days of old earth and the extraterrestrial change that becomes the salvation of the human race. So I've not read this. I don't know much about it uh, because I think it's later... Uh, Wells, when he was getting really preachy. At first, he was just sort of cynical. <laughs> and I think he got really preachy. Um, so that might be what's going on there. But there are very similar stories in his uh, um, earlier work. There's a, a story called The Star, uh, which is about a uh, just the, basically the destruction of the Earth by a comet. Um but it's not a comet, it's a star. And uh, ah. it's, uh, you know, massive upheavals. He just destroys the Earth rather than trying to save it. But um, it's also similar to um, a Conan Doyle story called The Poison Belt, uh, which is the Earth passing through a, uh, I guess, a nebula. And uh, Professor Challenger thinks this is going to kill everybody on the Earth. So he, he grabs a bunch of oxygen cylinders and has everybody come over to his house who he cares about. And then they witness the destruction of London and England and the Earth. This is not even one of his really later novels. This is a very like, early one. It's 1906. Is it? No, that's that's later. I mean... No, well, he, okay, well... Well, it's, I mean, it's not like later, but he basically gets the, well, I think, um, the last of his really famous ones is about 1903. Oh, okay. You, you, you were considering Time Machine, Moreau, Invisible Man. Yeah, Time Machine, Dr. Moreau, um, Invisible Man, right? All the ones that people sort of have at the tip of their tongues. Um, and his short stories are, you know, he he does do you know some World War One sort of fiction that uh, not World War One. It's about 
you know, the invention of uh, the nuclear bomb, the world set free. Yeah. But that that is even still late 19th century, early 20th. Uh, and then uh, I think that's 1914. But it, it, people don't regard it as well. No. Uh, it, it, people seem to think he got preachy. But what's interesting is he didn't only write science fiction. He wrote a lot of other stuff. He wrote fantasy. He he wrote a book about a mermaid called The Sea Lady, which I've never read, and I think that's just so cool. Um, about a a woman who uh ends up you know coming into society kind of in the same way as uh, uh the character in Heinlein's um you got it, Stranger in a Strange Land. Sort of just a woman from another era, a place coming into society and looking at that society and such. It's a very strange idea. He also wrote uh, a, a, a book about bicycling. Like, just, the, you know, bicycling was really in and he wrote a sort of a, a comedic road trip bicycle story. So, um, it's no wonder that we haven't heard of everything, but, he wrote, uh, yeah, he wrote a fair amount of. I want to read this. I, I I'm really, I'm really excited about reading H. G. Wells, which I, I, I think more people should be because he's so smart. He puts so much good work into his stuff. Well, we should put on the we should put it on the long list of mm-hmm. things to do for. Uh, now there's an audio. Absolutely. Military SF is where we're going next. Uh, Paul, you've done yours. I've done mine. Tamahome. You. Go for it. Is it my turn? Yes, it is. Oh. Do you know anything about um, Terry SF? You've read some, haven't you? I've read some David Weber. Yeah. It's not uh, my I favorite mean, genre or subgenre, I guess. I, I, I guess it, it, it varies. Um, I'll, I'll try to sound macho. Okay. <laughs> Dave Harris is a scientist living aboard the Ellie. A military space station where he carries out hyperfield experiments. The technology to harvest energy from hyperspace saved humanity from extinction 30 years ago, and Dave's research is at the cutting edge of hyperfield technology. Just as Dave's experiments make progress, an ancient an accident engulfs the alley in a whirlwind of chaos and mysterious forces, leading Dave to a disturbing discovery. His work has uncovered the energy behind psychic powers. Something horribly dangerous for a mind to be spreading amongst the humans in the alley. While the hours slip by, crew members are going insane at a frightening pace, and Dave's mind becomes clouded by horrifying visions. As he sorts to the aftermath of the disaster, Dave realizes that it wasn't a singular event, and if he can't find the, fight the impending madness, there is one certainty. The alley will be destroyed, along with everyone in it. This, this is a book called The Child by Keith F. Goodnight, read by Nick Podell. 11 hours, 21 minutes. Uh, it doesn't tell us much about a- anything, does it? It's, the alley is a space station. Um, is it around the Earth? We don't know. We don't know. I guess psychic powers are making a comeback. Um, military SF, they tend to be uh, in series but this doesn't sound necessarily like it's in a series so no. maybe it, it's the first we've got a reviewer for it i guess we'll find yeah. out it kind of remind, reminds me at least from the description of uh adam christopher's the burning dark which has a space station on the edge of a weird phenomenon and weird psychic stuff 
happens. There's ghosts and other sorts of very weird <laughs> things going on. That's a really good novel, by the way. Mm. Oh. Yeah, I like, well, that could be good, especially if it is done sort of as a spooky thing. Yeah, if, if they play up the horror aspects, yes. There, what, what's that movie? Uh, there's a movie with, that comes out of hype. Uh, you, you, you're talking about Event Horizon. Yeah, there you go. They come, go into hyperspace or come out of hyperspace and, and then everything's spooky. Like there's, I don't know, it's like Hellraiser universe or something. Yeah, 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 basically, basically hyperspace is a Hellraiser universe. Yeah, which is cool. It, it, it is cool. I mean, the movie gets gory at the end, but yeah, it's a pretty good, creepy movie. Um, I like it. it. I didn't know it at the time, but actually, it all, that all goes back to Lovecraft as well. He's got, um, He's got a story. Actually, a few, a lot of his stories are like this, but he's got a story that uh, I think it's called From Beyond, which is about a guy who uses a radio sort of sort of device to discover that there are there's a parallel universe all around us, and um, once you take a drug, you can see the things that the radio uh, is sort of I don't know, radar shadowing. Um, so it's like a combination of drugs and transmission and, um, it's very, very good story, but, um, there's a really good adaptation of it. Uh, I think it's uncredited, um, available now on streaming and Netflix and that sort of thing. It's called I think I've seen it. the Banshee chapter. Have you seen no. that? No, I haven't. There is a movie adaptation called from beyond as well, but it's from the eighties, but the Banshee yes, chapter thinking. is very, very good. Um, it it really gives you the the sort of creepy sense of what um, what it sounds sort of like a ridiculous idea, but actually um, it's it's working in the same sort of mind. Is we can't we can't be afraid of the dark when the lights are always on, but anything that we can't see is kind of the dark. And so if we can't see them because they're in a parallel universe, then we should be afraid of that. It works. Uh, right, so the next one is called The Oncoming Storm by Christopher G. Nuttall, and it sounds like another futuristic SF uh, military story, so I'll read it. It says, in the year 2040-20, no, not 2040-20, 24-20, war looms between the galaxy's two most powerful empires, the tyrannical theocracy and the protectionist commonwealth. Caught in the middle sits the occupied outpost system of Cadiz, where young officer and aristocrat Catherine Cat Falcone finds herself prematurely promoted at the behest of her powerful father against her own wishes. Cat is sent to the command of the Commonwealth's Navy, Navy's newest warship, Lightning, determined to prove she has the value beyond her family name. Cat struggles to earn her crew's respect and find her footing as the youngest captain in naval history. She soon discovers that the situation on Cadiz is even worse than anyone in power anticipated. War isn't just a possibility, it is imminent. Yet the admiral, in position to bolster defenses, refuses to prepare for a fight. Can Cat find a way to investigate the enemy, alert the Commonwealth, and whip the entire fleet into fighting shape before the theocracy's war machine destroys everything she holds dear? I guess you'll have to read the book to find out. It's read by Lauren Ezzo, and it runs uh, 13 and a half hours. Another uh, 47 North novel, and this sounds so David. So what is 47 North? 47 North is Amazon's publishing house. 
So that what do they pick they, people or yeah they they, well, so, they, they, they they basically publish some authors. Okay, so they've got their own publishing house now. Yeah, it's for oh. Yeah, and because Brilliance is the audio arm of uh, Audible. Yes, you see the synergy. Ah, hmm, interesting. Well, it makes sense. I mean, Netflix makes its own content. Amazon's making its own TV shows, including that new Man in the High Castle TV show that's coming out. Right? Yep, yep. Um, I saw that PlayStation has its own show, which is based on a comic book called Powers. It's no, like, that. that is weird, man. <laughs> well, you can't really call them TV shows when, when they're on a website and they're on your PlayStation, can you? I mean, they're, they're on screens. They're on screens. But yeah, the, the words sort of breaking down. Shows is probably what they're going to just have to be called eventually. I'm looking at this cover of the Uncommon Song. I'm trying to what the heck is she doing with her belt? Weird. Yeah, it looks like um, Honor Harrington. Yeah, that's what I, it, I think this book is on Honor Harrington. It, it's, it's on the Harrington with the serial numbers filed off. Exactly. No offense to Mr. Nuttall or Amazon, but yeah, this is, this is Honor Harrington knockoff. Yeah, totally. Well, Livy, you on Goodreads gave it five stars. There you go. All right. So we're moving into fantasy non-epic and it's the new lock and key radio drama, or I guess as we should call it audio drama because it's not available on the radio. Thirteen and a half hours, uh, based on the comic book by Joe Hill and, uh, a really good artist who I'm forgetting the name of because he doesn't actually do any work in the audio drama, but um, man, it's a great comic. And it's adapted by Elaine Lee and Fred Greenhalgh, who um, I'm friends with and is a very talented audio dramatist. So this is going to be excellent. I, I did start listening to it, but I haven't finished it because it, it's 13 and a half hours of audio drama. And I usually listen to audio drama when I'm going to sleep. So what happens is I start listening and then I fall asleep. <laughs> Gabriel but, Rodriguez is the artist yeah. on Lock and Key. Yeah, he's uh, really good. He's, he's amazingly talented. Yeah. Um, wonderful. Very detailed. Um, so you guys have both read this, or is it I just... Have, I have not read this because I haven't found a key, as it were, to get into Joe Hill as yet. Uh-huh. Right, you need to go to the library and get a get the first uh, volume because it is that good, and then you'll probably want to buy it because it's that good. Um, you haven't found the key to get into Joe Hill's head yet? Ha ha ha. Ha ha ha. Um, I, I just read it twice, so I, I think read it's right. it. Yeah, so, so, uh. I don't feel like horror or dark fantasy. I have to be in the right mood for that. It's not that horrible. It's, it, it has sort of horrific elements, but they are more, um, yeah, it's more dark fantasy, if, if that makes sense. But. There's one character that's totally evil, because. Indeed. Of things, um, but I think it's it's just it's hyper imaginative. Um, it it's weird because uh, Joe Hill looks like his dad, but he also writes like his dad. Stephen, uh, yeah, totally. I mean, have you seen pictures of him lately? He really looks like his. He looks like yeah. a young version of Stephen King. Completely, he's got the same beard and the same way of speaking, and you know, just. It's the exact same guy. Um, he's like a clone, but... Uh, <laughs> Which is interesting since he's tried so hard to distance himself from his dad. Uh, I, I think that's probably why, because... <laughs> but the thing is, is 
um, it, it's different. It's different, but it's it could have been written by King if, like, we're guessing as to who the author was, and we've never heard of Joe Hill. Um, I I would have said, yeah, it's possible it's King because it's it's about kids. It's got um, you know, kids sort of dealing with a creepy situation. Um, it's got that uh, manipula- manipulation of power, which um, I think uh, King is very good at. Um, it's got a lot of depth, um, but it's sort of universal as well, which, uh, you know, is I mean, Stephen King isn't the greatest writer uh, in the universe, but he's not bad. The main thing he's really good at is he sort of captures sort of the imagination of a good chunk of people. He sort of inveigles his way into what really, you know, holds power over people, I think. And this this does that same thing. I haven't found anybody who's read it who, who didn't like it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I it, think it has more out-and-out fantasy elements than maybe it, it has a... Uh, yeah, usually he, he doesn't have as many um, but he often has fantasy. It doesn't always, right? But right. he often has fantasy elements, and usually it's just one, one or two things. Um, right. But it's more like Twilight Zone. But where... all of the, uh, I think what's cool is that all of these are one thing, right? So these keys in Key House are when when you finally uncover where they all came from at the end, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it really is. It's sort of uh, the the best stories are all backstory, right? That's what this is. And there are some scenes in the, I, I hope they're in the audio drama as well. I would assume they are given it's 13 and a half hours long set in, you know, the past that are, you know, hundreds of years before the events of the story are, are the main story are taking place, um, giving us insight into how uh, things came to be as they are. And um, I think that that's pretty cool. I think uh, it's it's a really good audio drama from what I've heard so far because it's faithful to the comic. Well, maybe if I like the audio drama, I'll go back and then read the comic. I think you should probably do it the other way. I really do. Um, because the visuals are so good in the comic. Yeah, yeah I'm wondering how they're going to pull off the more visual stuff. It's so – it's, it's going to be interesting because, I mean, there is dialogue – but there's a lot, a lot of it's going to be, um, what's cool about the way Fred works is he has been along a champion of a kind of radio drama recording that doesn't, um, follow the studio convention that sort of was set by, you know, set in stone and made famous by, you know, Orson Welles, mm-hmm. you know, a bunch of people standing in front of a microphone with, you know, a box of, uh, uh, things to make noises to pretend they're outside, you know, walking on gravel or whatever it is. He records in the locations that you would be at if you were in a movie. So when they're uh, at a lighthouse, there's a lighthouse right where they're recording, and the actors are running around doing the things that their characters are doing. The comic book would be like the uh, blueprint for where to shoot. The, it, 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 you know, it is shooting in this, except the sense well, there's no camera, um, the there's the microphones, right? It's like a film production uh, unit without cameras, and it, it's it it sounds amazing. That's that's a really cool thing about it. And as Scott says in his review, um, you know these are really good to listen to with uh, headphones because 
you get a better sense of what's going on. I, I imagine a lot of people are going to be listening in their cars and their commutes, but you're going to lose a lot of that uh, oral quality of the of the environment when you can hear the echoes off the walls of the characters' voices and you can hear uh, where they are in space relative to each other. Fred is, he's really got something very cool going on and he's been working this way for a number of years. So this project's gotta be like, it's, it's gonna be the highlight of his career if, if nothing else ever happens. But it could be the start of something really amazing. I hope, I, I don't know how this uh, free thing works. I don't know if Audible's paying them, uh, nothing for the first month and, they're going to lose everybody, but I, I would hope that, that it does really well because yes. I'd like to hear more. There's a lot more stuff that can be adapted. I and do wonder about the business model here. It is very strange, but because um, Audible doesn't normally do that. They they do give away freebies, not 13-hour books, not generally. Not not something this uh, this big a production. Yeah, I yeah. guess they want the word of mouth first, so and then they'll... Sell it later. I don't know. Uh, uh, Go for the I long tail. Right. Yeah, I mean it's going to. Uh, there are going to be some people late to the game. And Delaney Lee is the writer of uh, Starstruck mm-hmm. comic book and Broadway show, and they also did an audio version of Star Trek Struck Two a long time ago. Mm-hmm. I guess they became friends. Yeah, um, the audio comics company is uh, the producers along with Fred. Um, and William Dufries, uh, audiobook narrator, voice of Bob the Builder, um, is, uh, also in the production. So it's going to be, it's going to be a, a pretty amazing thing for everybody, I think. And since it's free, there's really not any downside to going and downloading it and having yeah. listen. All right. Let's move into epic fantasy. Epic fantasy. Now we're going really into my wheelhouse here with, Twelve Kings in Sharakai, the first book of the Song of Shattered Sands by Bradley Bowyer. Um, read by Sarah Coombs, 26 hours, because it is, mm. a, it is a big, long book. Indeed. Okay. Sharakai, the great city of the desert, center of commerce and culture, has been ruled from time immemorial by twelve kings, cruel, ruthless, powerful, and immortal. With their army of silver spears, their elite company of blade maidens, and their holy defenders, the terrifying Asarim, the kings uphold their positions as undisputed, invincible lords of the desert. There is no hope for freedom for any under their rule, or so it seems, until Seda, a brave young woman from the west and slums, defies the king's laws by going outside on the holy night of Benet Sahir. What she learns that night sets her on a path that winds through both the terrible truths of the king's mysterious history and hidden riddles of her own heritage. Together, these secrets could finally break the iron grips of the king's power. If the nine omnipotent kings don't find her first, I read this novel. I like because I am a longtime reader of uh, Brad's work, so and uh, I gave him actually some feedback very early on when he was doing this enough that I wound up uh, in the acknowledgments, which was nice. Wow. So, oh. so, yeah, I, so, I, I mean, maybe an unbiased viewpoint, but yeah, but I think this is his best novel yet. He's learned a lot from his, uh, Calicovo series and really upped his game with this book. He's not so a, this novel is really shaped by you. <laughs> He's not a relative, so, uh, nope. you, you started going by following the author's work, 
not the other way around, right? It's Correct. Like yeah. The, no, no, I'm not really to him at all. No. Yeah. So the, that those are good endorsements. Um, so. Yeah. I I noticed you were tweeting earlier this week about how you find it impossible to say anything about a book to boost its sales if you are not enthusiastic about it. Yeah. Um, that's absolutely true. No matter yeah. who writes it, if it's yeah. something I like and I don't like the book, it's like, Ugh. yeah, because I feel like. Yeah, this right? would be good for X. If you are X, this would be a good book for you. Yeah, those sort of endorsements, they don't really sell anybody, I don't think, anyways. So I, I've had that same problem. We get we get a lot of content. Uh, uh, not everything speaks to us. we got to deal with the stuff that we do. We're best at dealing with, I think. The, the, the ones that sing to the song in your blood. So you're an epic fantasy fan, according to uh, the highlighting here. <laughs> oh, oh, yes. Oh, oh, oh. I'm, I mean, I, I, Tolkien was very early on the list. Rogers Lasney's Amber was very something I read very early. When, when the epic fantasy wave hit in the 80s and 90s, yeah, I jumped on it and... Haven't, haven't let go. I mean, there's good epic fantasy and there's terrible epic fantasy. It's gone up and down and Rise of Grimdark and all this other crap. Mm. But, so, but yeah, the only problem with epic fantasy is reading, reading a 700 page Kate Elliott novel takes some time. Or reading a 700 page Bradley Bowyer novel takes time. So it does, does uh, slow down my reading a little to dive into such Do you wring the last dregs out of every series, or do you usually stop after a certain point? There's Okay, now, true confessions is between you, me, and Tamahome. The listeners won't hear this, of course. I <laughs> didn't read past the first Robert Jordan novel. I didn't like it. Hmm. And I know, I know it went to 12 volumes and all... And, Brandon Sanderson finished it after uh, Jordan mm-hmm. passed away, but yeah, after the first novel, I was like, eh, I, this didn't speak to me, didn't continue on with it. Well, I, I didn't read past the first, uh, well, I couldn't, I couldn't read past the first George R. R. Martin epic, uh, Game of Thrones. I didn't hate it, it's just, I, I don't have, I, I read slowly and I don't have that much time. Uh, I, I don't know how anybody finds the time to read, you know, every, series that comes out they're just too long there's other books to read epic fantasy is an investment and it does mean i don't wind up reading others i think it's like a lifestyle though right like <laughs> it's a lifestyle choice yeah because like you are sacrificing other other activities um other reading other readings in order to dive into a secondary role but for the writer who gets it right it's worth it i mean there are writers well, I, I, I will not, I will not piss in anyone's Cheerios by mentioning them. Whose epic fantasy, yeah. Some, 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 one of which made me throw the book against the wall. So, and I didn't continue reading <laughs> that series ever, or much of it, that author's work ever again. And there's authors who I will read everything they write, like say the aforementioned Kate Elliott. Or, mm-hmm. or, or Brad, for example. I mean, writers who get it right. So, mm-hmm. you gotta be parsimonious in your, epic fantasy reading or else you will you, you you will spend a lot of time reading stuff that doesn't pay off well what about uh jim butcher what is jim, jim butcher oh well well look look here we have this good segue the, mm-hmm. the cinder spires the aeronauts windlass which is the first in a new series by mr butcher um since time have you read wa- this 
Not yet. I have right. I, I have a copy on my to be read pile. Since time immemorial, the Cinder Spires have provided shelter for humanity. But the ancient power that once upon a time sank the world into a shroud of mists and filled it with monstrous and fantastic creatures has returned. Asleep for ten thousand years, the ancient enemy has awoken, and those great powers which once stayed the enemy's hand are all but gone from the world. In the end, it is the loyalty and courage of a single airship's crew which will determine whether humanity will arise from its ashes or vanish forever. Now, Jim, Jim Butcher is mostly known for his Dresden Vile novels, which are, mm-hmm. er, which is one of the temples of urban fantasy, because it's set in modern day Chicago with magic. But I actually, I have read some Dresden Files, and I own the Dresden Files role playing game. Mm. But I actually prefer his secondary world fantasy, his Codex Alera novels, more than his epic, than his, sec, than his urban fantasy. Maybe because I, don't read a tremendous amount of urban fantasy. Maybe so it's set fantasy. in that same secondary world, or is no, it a... no? This is a new secondary no. world. Okay. So it's, it's steampunk. Yeah, this is this is steampunk. So I know he does secondary worlds well from reading the Codex Lara novels. So that's why I'm excited for this one because hey, this has what? airships. This is airships and mm-hmm. steampunk and the secondary world and 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 it's and beautiful end papers and maps by uh, nice by uh. I can't forget, uh, her name's uh, escaping me at the moment. Uh, she, she does a lot of maps for, uh, Jim Butcher and for, for other people. Oh, oh, Pris, uh, uh, Priscilla. I can't remember her last name though. Um, yeah, she, she, she's done a bunch of stuff for him. She runs a lot of stuff for Jim and she does, she does good mappage and so, and this book is gorgeous, so. Hmm. Priscilla right. Spencer, that's her last name. Yeah. Alright, so who's, who's the pink highlighter? That Tam? No, no, pink. Oh. No, pink was stuff that we've already dis- we've discussed uh-huh. earlier books before. Okay, so these are books in the in the series, the series that we've either uh, had discussed on previous shows or such. Uh, so, Dark in the Stars, Cricket Number Three by Amy A. Bartol is in uh, the Ciphers of Muirwood, Covenant of Muirwood Number Two, a YA. And Unholy War, the Moontide Quartet, number three. So I guess that's three quarters of the way finished. Uh, by David Hare. Dryad Born, Whispers of Mirrowind, number two, by Jeff Wheeler. And that brings us to Jenny's favorite section. Jenny's not available due to uh, allergic reaction. Um, but I guess we can do something for her here. Dystopia, Unrest, Destruction, Apocalypse. I like that. Category. That's so Jenny. Yeah, it totally is. Um, I heard a really interesting theory on one of the Geek's Guide to the Galaxies I was listening to the other day um, about why zombies and sort of dystopias are so popular, end-of-the-world stories. Um, and it, the theory was uh, that it was because it fits in really well with the uh, Christian... Uh, uh, modern Christian idea. Well, I guess it's not modern. Just the revelation sort of end of the world is the world. The end is nigh sort of thing. So why worry about the future? Drill all the oil now because, uh, Jesus will, uh, I don't know, raise up all the dead really soon and we'll all go into the kingdom of heaven. Oh, well, so, so rapture theology. Yeah. And I know Jenny came from a, uh, a very religious household. Uh, not that she's religious, but I think these things, I, I, I think that does make a lot of sense. Um, but I'm, I'm not 
religious at all. I wasn't raised religiously. Um, and I still think, you know, <laughs> I think it's cool too. So, uh, but I also think that it, it is interesting that it is much more common now than it, it used to be in the fifties. Um, they had such things, but there were a lot of, um, the future isn't terrible novels. The future is, uh, it has problems, but technology is going to give us all sorts of, um, uh, potential for, you know, sort of, it, we're not in Star Trek times anymore, I guess is what I'm saying. No, we're, we're, we're in Walking Dead, you know. Yeah. I guess in the 80s we were in Law and Order days where, uh, in the 90s when every, every TV show was Law and Order, CSI don't, just came to an end, right? Now there's two Walking Dead series. Yeah. Uh, What's it say about it? And that was one called Day Z or, no, no, I don't know, Z Nation or something like that. It, zombies are still in. They've been in for a while and they're not, this trend is not like a book. They'll, they'll just never die. <laughs> the undead. That's true. So, uh, let's see what Margaret Atwood has to contribute to this. Um, her latest novel is called The Heart Goes Last. And it's narrated by Cassandra Campbell and Mark Deakins. It's uh, 10, 12 hours, 10 minutes. And it reads like this. Stan and Charmaine are a married couple trying to stay afloat in the midst of an economic and social collapse. Job loss has forced them to live in their car, leaving them vulnerable to roving gangs. They desperately need to turn their situation around and fast. The Positron Project in the town of Consilience. Is that how it's pronounced? Con- and silence and resilience seems to be the answer to their prayers. No one is unemployed and everyone gets a comfortable, clean house to live in for six months out of the year. On alternating months, residents of consilience must leave their homes and function as inmates in the Positron prison system. Once their home, their month of service in the prison is completed, they can return to their civilian homes. At first, this doesn't seem like much of a sacrifice to make in order to have a roof over one's head and food to eat. But when Charmaine becomes romantically involved with a man who lives in their house during the months when she and Stan are in prison, a series of troubling events unfolds, putting Stan's life in danger with each passing day. Positron looks less like a prayer answered and more like a chilling prophecy fulfilled. Wait, what? Yeah. So it's a weird book, right? I'm trying. I'm trying to figure out the. Uh... The point of the premise. Okay, so you live six think, months. I don't of the think year. this is science fiction. I think it is allegory of some yeah, kind. Yeah, I think. She, yeah, I think this is much more allegorical. Uh, I shouldn't try to waste brain cells trying to figure out. Okay, why would you live six months out of the year in a house and six months be in prison? What's the point? Um. Yeah, I guess that's the plot of the novel. I know Jenny was not super happy with her uh, review. Yes, she gave it two well, stars on Goodreads. Uh, sorry, she was not super happy with the book in her review. Two oh, okay. stars on Goodreads. Oh. Um, she loves Margaret Atwood, didn't like this book. Uh, I don't like Margaret Atwood. <laughs> I liked one of her books. Um, but I, it, it's funny because it's, it's, it's got that word, positron, right? Which is, uh, Isaac Asimovian word. Yep. Um, but, uh, yeah, she she used to say things like, I'm not a science fiction writer, and I used to disagree. She's just like a lot of authors who who um, sort of try and distance themselves 
from science fiction. But I think she is right, actually, and I've been wrong about saying that she's right, because she doesn't really care about uh, consequences of of anything, uh, like in the way that, like, a, I'm not talking, you know, the people who write military SF or space opera or uh, fantasy. I'm talking about people actually, like, and they're few and far between these days, who actually are sort of about science. Uh, I guess the Ted Chiang sort of guys, right? They, they take some fact about reality and they say, what if this little niggling concern we have about what these things are is actually this? That's actually what they're writing about. Um, you know, what about, what about, what about this fact about, uh, you know, neurology is actually the case? Then doesn't that mean XYZ, right? She doesn't really care at all about that. She never has. And so I, I think that that's what's going on here. It, it, this isn't plausible. It doesn't, at least not in the description. So if you go in expecting that, I, I think it's some sort of allegory or some premise for, for an allegory or something. But what can we do? I don't know. Let her write her books. <laughs> more, more, more for other people. Yeah. We're moving into paranormal romance, another uh, category that I'm not super happy with. Um, but luckily, there's only one book here. It's Dark Ghost, which is uh, Dark Saga number 28 by... Christine Feehan. It's quite a saga. Phil Giganti yeah. and Natalie Ross. My, my 14 friend, hours. Can you imagine writing that many books uh, and having them be about 14 hours long? This is ridiculous. My, my, my friend reads them quickly. They, they I guess. They must. Uh, they must. Um, it's got a bounty hunter, a vampire slayer. A geologist. Yeah. Uh, I would not start with the 28th book if it was me, but... Um, that's okay. Everybody can have their books. Uh, let's move into fairy tales. And here's a guy who I, I've, read, I've read a lot of nonfiction by, but not a lot of fiction by. You, anybody read Salman Rushdie? I, no. I've read a couple of Salman Rushdie years and years <laughs> ago. Yes, I, I, I read, uh, read him back, uh, back in the 80s when he was uh, getting, uh, was under the fatwa and stuff. So. Right. He's got a he's got a really good sense of humor. That's what I like about him. Um, this is called Two Years, Eight Months, and Twenty Eight Nights. Um, it's eleven hours thirty minutes. It's read by Robert G. Slade uh, from Salman Rushdie. Rushdie, one of the greatest writers of our time, comes a spellbinding novel that blends history and folklore with tremendous philosophical depth. A lush modern fairy tale about the monsters that are unleashed when reason recedes and religious. Religion reigns. Two years, eight months, and twenty-eight nights is a breathtaking achievement and an enduring testament to the power of storytelling. Uh, I haven't told us anything about it yet. Let's keep going. Once upon a time, in a world just like ours, there came the time of the great strangeness. Oh, no, just the strangenessness. Strangeness says. Okay, there we go. The time of the strangenesses. Reason receded, and the loudest, most illiberal voices reigned. A simple gardener began to levitate, and a powerful genie. Or Jean, I don't know. Jin? Jin. Also known as the Princess of Fairyland, raised an army composed entirely of semi-magical great-great-great-grandchildren. 
Uh, a baby was born with the ability to see the corruption in the faces of others. The ghost of two philosophers long dead began arguing once more, and a battle for the kingdom of Fairyland was waged throughout our world for 1,001 nights. Or to be more precise, for two years, eight months, and 28 nights. There, there's the title. Title's wrong. Uh, is the math wrong? No. Math, oh, yeah. math right. No, I, I assume the math's right. That, that would be kind of embarrassing if it was wrong. Um, yeah, it could it could be fan, fabulous. I also like that Salman Rushdie isn't one of these sequel guys. <laughs> I know a lot of people like him, but uh, he just writes a book and then he writes him, he writes something different. Writes another book. Writes a different book. My my uh, my guess is, and maybe I'll maybe I'll squelch his uh, chances by. Uh, by saying this, I believe that probably within the next twenty years he'll probably win a Nobel Prize for literature. Just, just a guess. Just a, yeah. Just a guess. Yeah. I mean, he he doesn't doesn't make everybody happy though. And no, I, no, no. I don't but know how those those prizes work, but it's it's um, they. I haven't read a book because it was on the Nobel Prize list, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I I I know the Nobel Prize for literature hasn't been a reading guide for me, but still, no. there are yeah, authors I think should win win one, and I think Salman Rushdie's has a body of work and that deserves it. And we're heading into the print section. Uh, Joys to the world, mysterious speculative fiction for the holidays. Um, I, I assume this is an ebook, or maybe it's a paper book. It says print book, so um, we've got that. Uh, and it has a description that I think we should have a look at. It says, what do you get when you mix mystery and speculative fiction? Then toss in the holidays for good measure. A mobster Santa, genetic hanky-panky, Victorian villages, time-traveling detectives, Krampus, eerie bell spirits, and more. This collection of short cross-genre fiction is the perfect counterpoint to traditional traditional holiday reading. Joy to the Worlds brings together eight short works that explore mysteries across time and space, ranging from dark dystopian worlds to comedic retro futures. Four diverse writers find new ways to combine these des- disparate worlds. And writers include uh, Maya Chance, Janine A. Southard, uh, Raven Oak, and G. Clemens. And, and, and they say on Smash Reads award-winning and bestseller. I've never heard of these people. Well, I think there's a lot of people who are coming up through those uh, sites that, you know, they are big deals. Like Andy Weir was a big deal before he became but, a big deal, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I guess in that sort of class. And and I and since I don't really read through those sites and through that method there, I don't. I only it's, find out about anywhere. To it's a young game. person's game, Paul. That's how the young people are reading now. Yeah, I know. You no, and no. I are not in that category. No, so. we are not. No. Uh, get off my lawn. Get off. Get off Tam's lawn. Um, now, before we lose Tam, I want to. I want to talk some comics. Tam, have you All read right. any of these? Providence, House of M, The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, Princess Leah, We Stand on Guard, The Walking I- Dead. The Boz Chronicles, Cross Plus 100, or Conan Red Sonya? I read House of M uh, years ago. How old, how, how old is it? Because I just got the first issue um, as a, one of these $1 promotion uh, deals. Um, and I thought it was interesting. 2005. 
Wow, really that old? Yeah. I, yeah. I had no idea. It's one of those uh, series that resets the Marvel Universe. Mm-hmm. I think all the mutants die or something, or lose their powers. Well, well, I, I, I will explain that. Basically, first Scarlet Witch changes the Marvel Universe so that her family, which is Magneto's family, rules the Earth. And then, when that universe finally falls in on itself, she decides no more mutants and depowers most of the mutants in the Marvel Universe. Is this why Thor is a girl now? No. This okay. Is not why, this is nothing to do with why Thor is a girl. Okay. I didn't under, I, I, I still haven't become clear on why Thor is a girl now, but. Well, I could explain that. That's not related to the house. That's not related to the house. Alright. But see, I, I, that would be a perfectly legitimate explanation to me, right? Because you were saying that, uh, the Scarlet Witch was the most powerful, arguably the most powerful, uh, mutant in in mutantdom, yeah, which is a lot because Magneto can, I don't know, he can lift the moon out of its orbit and check it into uh, another star or something. I don't know. Yeah, but Scarlet Witch can rewrite reality. Right. So that's that's a bigger power, which uh, makes that's her, pretty good. Yeah, which makes her hard to use as a character. She mm-hmm. she really only really works, I think, as a juice ex machina, which can annoy off some people. But yeah, she's so yeah. So basically, they uh. They swapped out a lot of characters, depowered a bunch of others, got rid of some as as a result of the House of M story, which is all after the House of M actually took place. The actual House of M story is actually about this alternate world that she briefly creates, and it's a fascinating alternate superhero world. I mean, Spider-Man's an athlete and is popular <laughs> and famous, and he likes it, but he knows it's all wrong, because this is not the way the universe should be. So uh, the title is that Magneto yeah. is the end. Yeah, because Mag- so, Magneto and his family basically rule right. the Earth, as opposed to like the House of Xavier or something. Well, well, House, of, well, because Magneto, Quicksilver, Scarlet Witch, um, right. Polaris—they all basically run the world for mutants, mm-hmm. for mutants by mutants, and humanity is the uh, the oppressed uh, minority. So this is uh, one of those issues I was saying I got as a floppy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really like these dollar uh, floppy deals because I look at the stands and I say, I'm not paying $5 to get the first issue of something that might be terrible on page three. So uh, it's not much of a gamble when it's a buck. Um, I, I got a couple others there. But do you guys take advantage of this? It seems to be a thing now where they just all the companies just say a buck. Come on, give it a shot. You might like it. The trade's out. Sometimes I mean I mean what I also take advantage of stuff during Free Comic Book Day in May. <laughs> well, yes, but that's free. But that's free. But but that but if they, if they have some if they have a comic that's looks interesting, I can continue along with mm-hmm. it afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Bye. Tam, are you doing that? No, I, I didn't know about the dollar. Oh, well, maybe you should go to the comic book store, bud. I know you I hang just, out. I at... just go to the bookstore and, and read the trade right there. Oh, uh, well, yeah, that, that'll work, too. Um, so uh, amongst the others, I got uh, this Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, which I really think is pretty fun. Have you guys read this one, Tam? I've, I've heard of it. Not yet. Okay, you definitely should check it out. It's really funny. Um, it's fun. It's a very unusual. I don't like uh, superhero stuff very much. I got that House of M because uh, Paul had mentioned it. And 
uh, that made me interested. It had a little bit too much superhero sort of uh, backstory stuff for me. I, I read a little bit, but not a big fan of superheroes in general. But uh, it's kind of a feminist comic, like uh, I don't think that that's the word for it. I think it's just fun and fabulous because uh, it it's got a, the main character uh, is just endearing. I think is what it is. She's she's a squirrel girl. She she starts off the the comic by singing uh, the theme of Spider Man, Spider Man. Except she's changed all the lyrics to Squirrel Girl, right? And it's just wonderful. She's got a sidekick who is a squirrel that she can talk to and other squirrels can talk to, but nobody else understands. She's going to college. She, she tucks her tail into her pants, uh, and gives her a really big ass, which is good for her. <laughs> I guess she, she's a silver age, happy go lucky superhero who is in a age not really that's at odds with actually her kind of person. I mean, I mean, comics back in the fifties and sixties were much more squirrel girlish in terms mm. of all their characters. So she's kind of like almost out of time, out of her time in a way. And that's, and that makes her endearing because she's so at odds with a lot of the grimness and darkness and. Yeah. And there's taking itself way too serious. Yeah. I mean, squirrel it's, it's, never takes herself seriously. She's a squirrel. Come on. I mean, she's got squirrel blood. What the heck does that even mean? I mean, come on. I, I would say that, you know, this is actually something that comics should do a, a little bit more, which is write comics for kids occasionally, you know, like, um, House of M. I wouldn't give that to a kid because no, no. not because, not because they, wouldn't understand it, but rather because they'd be bored by it. It's too inside baseball of the X-Men for 10,000 years, right? You have to know who Magneto is and understand that, you know, he's got this family and this relationship. There was all this stuff about Genosha. I'd forgotten about Genosha. Is that how it's pronounced? Genosha, yeah. Yeah. That You don't have that in Squirrel Girl. <laughs> she She knows about the Avengers, right? She'd like to date an Avenger, perhaps. But uh, that's not what it's about. And there's an infectiousness to it. Uh, uh, if you do a search for a squirrel girl and, you know, hit images, um, there's a, people dressing up, a cosplaying as her, and they are having a hell of a lot of fun. I mean, I know that everybody does that for regular uh, superheroes as well, but um, you see a lot of kids, which... Uh, I don't think cosplay is the same when you go to the store and you can buy an Avengers costume and Hulk hands and stuff. I think when you have to make your own costume, that's uh, a sign that people are really digging it. Yeah, rather than just buying it off the shelf. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, you know, kids. I, I'm I'm saying like this is a great one for kids. It's also good for me. I thought it was fun. I I want to pick up the trade. I don't know if I will, but. Uh, I'll look at the price and I might get it, which is very strange because I don't yeah, I don't buy. I've seen the trade in the bookstore. You should check it out, Dan. I think yeah. I'm gonna dig it. Uh, so uh, the other one that I got uh, like that is called Princess Leah, which is part of this Marvel uh, takeover of Dark Horse's uh, Star Wars, and it's terribly written. I, I was like. Well, oh. something wrong with Princess Leah is making terrible decisions every five seconds and doubting yourself and then being full of confidence. It was, it was insane. I, 
Art was good though, but yeah, uh, they've got a whole bunch like this. Um, uh, different, uh, Star Wars, you know, like Han Solo or whatever. Uh, Chewbacca. I think they're, they're doing, they're, they're making so much more product than, um, Lucas was now that Disney's taken over. They're just licensing it to, you know, get all that money out. I don't know what an effect it'll have, but, uh, yeah, I, I bought one and didn't do it for me. I think maybe they're just spreading their resources too far. Um, Providence, anybody yeah. been reading that? Still not. No, I, I, I want to read the trade, but, uh, and I really like, you know, Nomicon is, that's, this is Alan Moore and this is, uh, right. HP Lovecraft type thing. And mm. I like this previous one, uh, new Nomicon. Yeah. Uh, oh, I'll definitely check it out in the it's trade. It's powerful. I'm not sure you, you, you know, so, oh, joy, right? Reading it, but, um, it's, uh, gonna be six issues through very soon, which is half the series. It's at issue five now. Um, I don't know if that, they are gonna do a trade at halfway through. Six is probably. Hope so. Yeah, it could be, yeah. but it might be a, a, another six months before it finishes and we do get a trade, but, I, I probably will end up getting the trade, even though I also have been getting the floppies, which is telling you something. I don't usually double buy like that, but you, you, you've mentioned to us before. I don't remember it was on air, off air, air about how much you really dig this series. It's it, it's so strange because the the main character is that he is uh, he is a nothing. That's the thing is he is just a viewpoint to this world. So he doesn't, you know. He doesn't do anything. He just travels. And yet, um, it, 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 the story isn't all that powerful either. But because it's, it is a series of sort of vignettes of visiting Lovecraft's setting. So if you are familiar with Lovecraft, uh, you were like, ah, oh, that's what this is. And I see what he's doing there. And wow, isn't this a powerful take on it? And what's interesting is that He's more is um, he is saying I love H.P. Lovecraft and H.P. Lovecraft was a complete racist and has all sorts of weird, terrible ideas. And here's what I think would be interesting if we reexamined it and reinterpreted it. What 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 was what if you looked at it from a, a modern perspective and you put yourself in those situations today with our mindset? As opposed to, uh, you know, the super hyper racism and that sort of thing, uh, you know, anti-gay thing. And you put yourself in that situation. What would that mean? And what would it be like? And so it's not so much as a, it has a story as it is an examination, a meditation on those stories. Because each one is like a visit to the place and the stories that the stories Lovecraft wrote about our set in. We don't have the full story of any of those stories. It, it is not really uh, like there's a plot. <laughs> there is a plot. It just doesn't really matter because, like, for example, um, uh, we were visiting uh, what is the equivalent of um, uh, Miskatonic University in the latest mm-hmm. issue. Yeah. Um, and there's, uh, the, re- the equivalent of, um, uh, the reanimator. I can't even remember his name right now, but, um, 
doctor, whatever his name, reanimator. Stuart Gordon? <laughs> Stuart Gordon's the filmmaker. Oh. Um, no, I mean wait, the character. Wait, wait. Uh, oh. Herbert West, reanimator. Okay. Okay, so Herbert West's equivalent is in this this book, but he's not going to interact with the main character in a way that will leave him shattered uh, like it would leave uh, someone else shattered. He just sort of experiences something says, oh, isn't that strange, and then moves on to the next story. Um, so if you are deeply involved in Lovecraft, I think it's a very rewarding experience. But I can't imagine people are going to walk away from it saying, geez, you know, um, he he really had a great story to tell there, because th- that's not what it is. So what if you don't know Lovecraft? Can you still enjoy it? I don't know. I have no idea. Yeah, yeah that, that that's what I was wondering too, Tim. Is this, is this good for the inside baseball of like, oh, oh, that's there's that Lovecraft person's there. Oh, there's that. There's that. Or is or could it work at all as a entry point to like I want to know more about that Herbert West guy. Let me go read some Lovecraft. Yeah, I don't know. I I I would be fat. The thing is, is it's so powerful. Uh, and the, the turns and the very, um, like, uh, literally, the turns, when you turn the page and you see something, you say, oh, my God, holy crap, you sort of put the book back farther uh, uh, across from you, you know, because it's so shocking. Um, and often it's not just, like, uh, visually shocking. It's, like, idea shocking. And uh, there's a thing that happens where you say, okay, I don't know what's going on here. And then... You work your way through it, and eventually you say, "Oh, that's what was going on." So there's a scene uh, in a, I think, issue four, where he visits um, characters from the Dunwich Horror, mm-hmm. um, and there's a lady talking to a barn. <laughs> it's like, what the heck's going on there, right? <laughs> and then later on, we see the same scene from the thing that's looking at the lady. And it's, you know, it's because one of the characters is invisible, right? Um, and he's, you know, trans-dimensional. And you're not sure what to think about that. <laughs> um, anyway, it, it is, it, it, he is so engaged with Lovecraft. He's like wrestling with him and pinning him down, right? And saying, is this really where you're going? Okay, I'm going to flip that around completely, right? Miscegenation, you think that's bad? Okay, Mr. Lovecraft, what if it's good? (laughs) That is weird. Very weird. I've never seen fiction like this before. Deconstructing the dark portions of Lovecraft and inverting and and flipping and showing to the viewer. I mean, I I, I didn't read Watchmen as it was coming out, issue by issue, so it may be that it, it does have an overall story and it does have something to say. I know that individual issues... Um, they have arcs, right? Right. But but the main character is just a viewpoint. I mean, he, I mean, he has some characteristics, he has some qualities, but they just help us as a lens through which to see uh, this place. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know how anybody can, if they can appreciate it. I, I've I've shown it to students and gotten them started on it saying, look what's going on here, and look what's going on there, and they, they do get into it. So, But I also I also push Lovecraft on them, too, so I don't know. It's an interesting one. 
I know Alan Moore wrote the intro to that collection of H.P. Lovecraft mm-hmm. stories. Mm-hmm, yeah, he's so he's deeply involved in the oh, yeah. stuff. So. The other one that uh, that's Alan Moore on this list is the Crossed Plus 100 trade, which is the first six issues of of Crossed Plus 100. Yeah, can I just read that instead of Providence? Well, Providence is not I think that yet. you'd be wise to read uh, Crossed Plus 100 um, immediately because it's very science fiction-y. Um, in a very good way, a couple of good ways. But, you know, Alan Moore does love this intertextual sort of reference and allusion to things. So um, one of the things that happens is each issue or each section of the, the trade is labeled with, a, you know, a title as often they are, but they are all references to um, science fiction or fantasy novels. So the very first one is a reference to uh, Hugo Gernsback, uh, story which is considered sort of the first of the modern science fiction stories after H.G. Wells and sort of where scientific, scientific fiction, eventually science fiction comes from. One, one of them is called The Return of the King. Um, this one is uh, Canticle for Leibowitz, right? uh, sort of thing. Um, and what he's done is, uh, Tam, you've read some cross, right? Um. A little bit in the beginning. Yeah, so you know what the premise is. Uh, Paul, have you read Crossed? No. It's zombies, right? It's kind of zombies, yeah. What's interesting is they're not zombies because they're alive. But the difference between uh, Crossed, the Crossed, and zombies is that it's infectious and doesn't kill you, but it it infects you and takes away your morality, Uh, as in it takes away anything good in you. Your super ego is completely gone. You're you're just id, and anything evil that you ever think that you might you know do you know cruelty, uh, rape, whatever, <laughs> um, that is all that you are, and it's insatiable. Um, it, it takes you over in the same way that zombies must you know eat brains or flesh or whatever. Brains. This takes you over the same way. But uh, you can still speak. You just only speak the most horrible things that are imaginable. And uh, what's cool is that uh, Garth Ennis started this in 2008, I think, is, is this sort of series of comics. Um, other writers have taken it up, but Alan Moore uh, was obviously reading it, and he thought, wow, this is really interesting. And he says, what would happen 100 years down the road? Which, to me, didn't make a lot of sense as to, like, I thought, why don't you just write a Cross story? Because I'd like to see what Alan Moore does with Cross. But I just failed to remember what Alan Moore is about, which is about thinking deeply about things. So what he said is, look, if you've got these people and, you know, these people that are infected and that want to have sex with everything and uh, want to eat and tear things up and cause pain just because that's who and what they are then they couldn't really last very long, could they? <laughs> because they would rape each other to death and eat each other to death, and after all the other people were infected, that would be the end. But he uh, says, well, yeah, but that's not how evolution works, right? Um, you have to fit into your niche or uh, you will disappear. And so the crossed are evolving. And the people who uh, survived this... Uh, what they called the big surprise <laughs> of 2008 have come to 
uh, think that the crossed are dying out, but that may not be the case. Uh, when you start reading it, you you see there are crosses still around. There's also all sorts of like bone piles everywhere that are bl- blocking roads just because everybody's dead, right? And for a hundred years, people have been dying, um, and you know, five billion people or six billion people dead is a lot of bones lying around. Um, but on top of all of this, Moore has said, okay, if something this devastating happened, what would that do to this culture? And he has completely rewritten English to, you know, like we were reading that fantasy, uh, sorry, the space opera about a girl named Kate who's a space captain, you know, commanding a ship full of, I don't know, soldiers. And right, it's 400 years in the future. Um, yeah, that's not very realistic, is it? Uh, but this is like just a hundred years in the future and everybody's language is completely changed. The reading, like if you pick out individual word balloons and try and figure out what's going on in the story, you can't. You have to be sort of trained up by the text, reading at the beginning and figuring out what, with the visuals, what they're talking about. Because all the, all the adjectives have changed. Uh, some of the grammar has changed, but, uh, things don't mean what they, they do. Like, so shit is not shit. It's brown, right? So let's say the, the, the browning, things are going brown. Okay. that, Right. But, um, the, the story starts off with like the, you know, a journal and it gives the date and then it says, ah, fuck at the end, a F A W K. And I said, that's weird. And then. Oh, fuck. And then um, people will have a conversation about, like, what what should we do? You think we should go this way? Um, well, no, that's probably not the re- best way to go, right? And then they say, oh, fuck. And it's like, that's weird. Why are they swearing all the time? <laughs> um, you, you come to realize, it doesn't say anywhere in the text. You just come to realize, oh, it means as far as we know. Uh, A-F-A-W-K, right? It's I was, like I was going to say away from keyboard. Yeah, yeah, and he's oh. done that all over the place. So it's it's completely full of this. So when they they are like have a train, they take some stuff off the train. They they call it downloading. <laughs> it's like oh, and he's they've reconstructed. He's reconstructed the the language of English in the in the way that it's it's like when you read uh, A Clockwork Orange, right? Right, or like Neil Stevenson's Anthem. Could be, uh, yeah, probably similar to that, yeah. So, I would say if you like science fiction and you you like the premise of of it, uh, I think it, it's it's smarter than zombies. That's the thing, right? Is zombies are it's just a fear of death and uh, fear of the world ending and that sort of thing. This he's done a little thing more by saying like these are living creatures they can reproduce uh if they eat their babies they won't be able to reproduce so how would they compensate for this and he he's a science fiction writer in this case mm. he's thinking about it and he's got an answer and the answer is wow that's fucking intelligent man wow mr alan moore you're smart well, that definitely entices me to uh, read it. You, sh- you should have wrote the introduction to the trade. I I already lent it to a friend because it was oh, okay. Uh, it's it's a hot commodity. Clearly. Yeah. I'm pretty sure my bookstore has it. I'll I'll check it out. You should. But I don't think zombies are a fear of death. Uh no. I I I my 
opinion while we've gone way off topic of new releases here on the SFO podcast. Um, my, my theory is that zombies are not a fear of death. Zombies are a fear of loss of individual volition and personality. Because, because if you think of what zombies are, they just become mindless, consuming things that attack things they love and destroy them, and they have no personality, no, no volition, no mind. Mm-hmm. The fear of zombies is, the fear of becoming a zombie is that it, it's kind of a reflection of our 21st century existence that you're just going to be a mindless thing that just goes through the motions of life without any real will, desire, or or mental uh, capacity. And even worse, the people around you are going to do the same thing, which kind of ties almost a little bit into, you can, you can tie that into an Alzheimer's sort of uh, metaphor. Because <laughs> what, look what Alzheimer's yeah. does to people. They, I guess. They forget the people around them. Just I didn't become... think about it that way, but I, I, I'm not actually worried about that at all. But I guess if, if I had Alzheimer's in my family, I would like, oh, yeah, that is, I mean, that is kind of what it is, right? Smearing poo on the walls and and uh, wandering. Yeah. Wandering in... and not knowing the people you love and they don't know you. And Yeah, yeah, yeah that makes it, sense. It's a real horror. It, yeah, that's kind of scary. Um, but, uh, I think people are afraid of death and we don't talk about death very often in, no, in consciousness. Yeah. And so it, it's like a memento mori, uh, sort of thing. It, it's, it's kind of a safe version of it, but I'm, I was maybe thinking particularly of the walking dead, which I've been reading. Uh, I got the latest big, uh, it's not a trade. It's a two hardcover. Mm-hmm. It combines two trades instead of, uh, you know, one, um, and, uh, that's been long running the shows, you know, there's two shows now. Uh, one of the things that's interesting about there is, is that there's zombies is it's not an infection. Everybody's infected. So if you die, you become a zombie. Um, and if you get bit, then you become a zombie, <laughs> but no matter what happens, you become a zombie. And just because of that, that makes it so that, you can't you can't like get rid of the death, right? In the same way that we can't. Everybody thinks they're immortal until uh, somebody in their family dies, right? Or somebody they love dies, or one of their heroes dies, and then it might become a little clearer to them. But uh, because we are we have pushed this out of our thinking so much that people talk about and believe things about aging and you know rejuvenation and uh i don't know that sort of thing i think that people uh it's like a memento mori thing they have that skull on their desk they can think about uh zombies as not being a, a sort of a non-scary version of, of thinking about their own deaths maybe that's um, i think I, bosses, I think too. i have to go all right well thank you tam you're welcome see you guys later um there's one other comic that uh, I've been started reading. What's that? Starts, uh, Brian K. Vaughn's new collaboration uh, with a Canadian artist about the invasion of Canada by uh, uh, the United States. It's set in the future, and uh, it, it's looking to be good. I'm hoping it's going to be a good run. I, I usually like his stuff. I didn't like Saga that much, but everybody else loves Saga, so... Saga is something that most people like, but just like everything, there's no 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 pleasing everybody. Yeah. Yeah. So invasion of the United States. 
No, Invasion of Canada by the United States. Oh, okay. So it sets, I don't know, 100 years down the road. Drones are uh, the military now completely, it looks like. And, uh, you know, Canada's not going to win that war. Uh, the way we win is by being the, the, the good friend to the bully on the street, not by confronting the bully. <laughs> uh, that's how we win. But, uh, in this case, the bullies turned on us and, um, uh, we lost. Why in the world do the United States want to invade Canada? Water? Uh, the only time, the only time Canada's ever been invaded, it was by the United States, so. Yeah, but that's because you were under British control at the time and the British were fucking around with our, uh. Make your excuses, whatever you want to say. With our shipping. <laughs> whatever you want to say. <laughs> the only that's time Canada's ever been invaded was by the United States. So. Okay. Yeah. Um. In any case, um, it's, it's worth checking out, uh, if you are, uh, a fan of Brian K. Vaughn, cause I, I like most of the things he's produced and, uh, this is a new production. I, I actually, it's strange. When I read comics, I don't read for artists. I read for writers. Um, some people follow the artists. It makes no sense to me because I'm, I mean, I, I like artists. I, I hope that they get paired with good with good writers, but uh, good art with no good writing is not worth reading. It's just pretty to look at, but it's not an actual story yeah, you can see. You can't keep looking at it after page after page. You just say, that's it, I'm done. So, um, there's a couple of uh, radio dramas I got in uh, from uh, Dark Adventure Radio Theater is the name of the series. Um, they are produced by uh, a company who makes um all sorts of products uh, related to H.P. Lovecraft, the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society. Um I think they started as a prop maker. I don't know if this is the case, but they they include in their CDs a uh, whole bunch of sort of prop items like newspapers and library cards and all the sort of things the paraphernalia that go with the story, which is like a rather unusual thing. I don't think anybody else does that. Um, but the same care and attention that they put into the props, they also put into the story. And because they, they are Lovecraft fans first, their adaptations are very, very good. Uh, the two latest ones that I got are the horror at Red Hook, which is a straight up adaptation of the horror at Red Hook, mm-hmm. which, um, is a, uh, what, what people say is one of the most racist of Lovecraft stories, and it is. Yeah, it's just you can't you can't pull that. Yeah, you can't read that without saying it. Yeah. No, it is really racist. Um, uh, but I've seen I've seen I was I went in expecting it to be the most horrible thing ever, and so no, it's just typical Lovecraft racism. It's it's not like death camps. <laughs> it's, no. It's just like contempt for foreigners and. Uh, you know, sort of ridiculous, uh, stuff, but it's fun and it's a fun story. It's ridiculous and it's fun. Um, but the other one that they put out that is very different is called, uh, Dagon, uh, War of the Worlds. Now, Dagon is a short story. Um, a horror red hook is a, a bit longer. It's a novelette or novella. Um, but Dagon is a very short story, maybe three or four pages. And they do, you know, they've done adaptations of all the big stuff, so it would be hard to figure out how they would do Dagon 
given how little happens in the story and how little, um, how few characters are. There's one guy in the story and he just tells about his experience on a, in a boat and then on a, uh, uh, plateau in the middle of the ocean. And there's no other characters at all. So it'd be yeah. basically impossible for a radio drama to do anything like uh, a storytelling without adding characters in. But they kind of found a way. And what they did was they said, well, uh, imagine War of the Worlds, um, except not from space, but from beneath. Um, so did you ever play XCOM? You remember? X- I loved XCOM. Uh, I loved XCOM to death. I loved XCOM so much. It was such a advanced game for the time. The, the play, like you can still play the original XCOM today. And it, I mean, other than some clunky graphics here and there, right? it's a amazing gameplay and a, an amazing game. Um, and then there was a sequel. Do you remember the sequel? XCOM 2, yeah, where the aliens are underwater bases and you got to go fight the wa- aliens exactly. underwater. Exactly. XCOM Terror from the Deep. So XCOM 1 is War of the Worlds. XCOM 2 is Dagon War of the Worlds, right? Um, that is the uh, aliens at the bottom of the ocean um, are invading the Earth. And they do it as the Orson Welles style uh, of War of the Worlds, where there's radio reports. Um, one of the things that Dark Adventure Radio Theater's premise is, is that these are from the 1930s. They are radio dramas from the 1930s. So they even have, like, um, advertising during the show and uh, sponsors and all, all the sort of ridiculous, you know, style of radio drama that they had in, in those that era they do that and what they have done is basically mapped out all of lovecraft's sort of fear of the underwater or water and squiddy sort of things and turned it into a consistent story uh and and played it out as as the orson welles drama does so you know orson welles has it starting here's our regular broadcast of dance music right and then interrupted by a news report. Yep. Right. And then it comes back to the dance music. That's exactly how this plays out. Um, but it uses all of the different elements from different stories, including Dagon. Yeah. I'm, um, I'm, I'm reading, I'm reading this little dispatch here. It says inspired by the stories, Dagon, the shadow of its mouth and the temple. Mm-hmm. And also the call of Cthulhu, which is, uh, uh, also got water, right. And underwater rising going on in it. Um, and it is really, really clever and really fun. Um, it's, it's not a departure from the rest of the series, even though I was like, this is bullshit. It's not Dagon. <laughs> uh, but what's so funny is they even oh. do a little bit of Dagon. There's a guy, you know, saying, uh, I'm going to jump out this window because <laughs> I am fearing for my life and I've run out of the money to pay for the drug that uh, prevents me from fearing. Oh my God! I'm reading. I'm reading this uh this promo thing, and you mentioned uh Orson Welles' War of the Worlds, mm-hmm. and, and they talk about the staff on here and radio adaptation, and they and you go down further, and it says Raymond Rakello and his orchestra play Little Dutch Mill. Mm-hmm. If listeners of uh the War of the Worlds will remember that the music starts off with Raymond Rakello and his orchestra playing at the the Meridian Room in downtown New York. So I love 
that. That's cool. Mm-hmm. They they are there's something different about these guys, and they they have this attention to detail uh, that you know Alan Moore is so good at. Um, they are they really take the stuff seriously, even though they've got a great sense of humor. Um, they if it, if it says it in the story, they take it seriously. They don't dismiss it, and they incorporate it as as best they can. They've also done movies. They've done a silent movie version of Call of Cthulhu and a uh, adaptation, black and white, uh, full length feature adaptation of uh, uh, once uh, of another one. I can't remember what it's called now. But um, it, both of I haven't seen the Cthulhu one, but the the full length um, one. It's it's a real movie. It has a low budget. Uh, but it's a real movie. These guys are the real deal. You're gonna have to listen to it and let us know what you thought of it. I've 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 heard Dagon where the worlds. It's wonderful. Oh, okay. Oh, well, it's then, wonderful. Well, I, I've heard them both. Horror Red Hook is is another fine adaptation. They've done uh probably a half dozen or ten by now. Um, but the, Dagon where the worlds is fabulous. I'll uh I'll send you my digital copy. I they they uh what's cool is when you buy them. Uh, the CDs, they send you the digital copy immediately. And, and it then, looks like they get all these props with the physical. Oh man, this, this, once you open the case, you can't get it back closed because it's so full of stuff. Newspaper, like genuine newspaper, newspapers with printing on both sides and articles fully written out. You know, it's not like, it, they're the best movie props you've ever seen. Yeah, yeah. So do send it to me if I like it. I'll buy the things. Definitely. Because this reminds me of uh, the old uh, Infocom Zork, like Zork games. You're right. That's we had exactly all the stuff in the st- stuffed into the box. I love that sort of thing. Ah, That's cool. Yeah. There was a wasn't there a bag of nothing as well? Um, oh, you're supposed to look through your inventory and find no tea or something. Right. <laughs> that was such a this guy to the galaxy. There was a little empty bag that had your no tea in it. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah, there's there's like pages torn out of books. There's uh, you know, immigration papers. There's you know, everything that that makes it feel as if it's an authentic um maybe this is real sort of thing. I don't I don't know how that that, that helps as a selling feature other than it is it's more of this attention to detail. We can do it. It doesn't cost us too much. It's printing, right? So let's do it, and they just do it. They're so good. Neat. Mm-hmm. Uh, from that same company, uh, I got a, a book of letters H.P. Lovecraft wrote uh, to and with and from uh, Zelia Bishop, uh, Zelia Brown Reed Bishop, who was one of these people who uh, got Lovecraft to rewrite their work so that they could sell it, um, often under... With no credit to Lovecraft, but, uh, he was a prolific letter writer, so, uh, and they just came out with that, so that's pretty cool. I got one more. Okay, one more. This is the final one. The Boz Chronicles. Now, you might have read this. This came out in the 80s uh, as a six issue limited series, um, from Epic Comics, which was a Marvel imprint that allowed the, uh, it's one of those comics that, allowed the authors to keep their copyrights and it's a very modern sort of take on 
something that we've seen a lot lately. It feels like it could have come out just now as a sort of response to something, but it's not. It's from the 80s. So the premise is there's this alien who's who's crash landed in England um, and is lonely and alone and suicidal. Uh, he meets a uh, prostitute who takes pity on him and tries to prevent him from killing himself. But uh, in order to do that, she has to always continually find him novelty. And so they just started detective agency. What was, was this like set like uh, 19th century England? In Exactly. Okay. I did read this then. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it is, it's wild. Every issue, there's a, uh, some sort of adventure problem to be solved. Uh, whether it's, uh, you know, an African, uh, uh, hunter whose plan is to take over the world. There's a underground world. There's an underground utopianist anarchist. Um, there's street thieves. It's, there's demons. Uh, there's yeah. nudity, lots and lots of nudity. Mostly of yeah, the male alien pudgy yeah. <laughs> alien with a tail. Um, and the art's really good. It's by Brett Blevins. Um, he did New Mutants, if you read New Mutants. Yeah. Yeah, I, I thought New Mutants was a really good run. Um, and this is from Dover Publications, who they are just getting into comics, but they're famous for their um, Dover Thrift editions, which are really... Very, very uh, inexpensive and good uh, copies of public domain works. Um, but they are really inexpensive. And as is this comic, it's 20 bucks, but it is 200 pages. And the way they've done that is they've used uh, really thin paper so they can get in uh, a lot of content. But they've also put in every last little thing that you would want. Um, so there's every cover... There's all a bunch of sketches, tons and tons of sketches, new new material from the artists, and also introductions, forwards, afterwards by the artists and uh, writer. And I I found it like, yeah, I would actually pick this up and keep reading it if there was another one coming out. But because it came out in the '80s as a limited series, I don't think it's coming back. No, it, it, but it's a, it's a nice. Uh... Recall back to the past. Yeah, and it, I've, I'd never heard of it. So, like, for me, it's like, it is exactly, it's like reading some more New Mutants, um, with, uh, sort of a feel of the new Doctor Who, except, uh, I, I don't like the new Doctor Who that much. But you know how, <laughs> wasn't there a character, uh, in the new Doctor Who, who is like a lizard lady? And she, oh, yes, Madame Vestra. Right, and she's like a, Sherlock Holmes style character with she is. a human wife and a uh I don't know, an alien the the, the, centaur, the, the centaur and butler slash right. one, yes. That uh, if I had read this not knowing it was from the eighties, I'd say, Oh man, they're just ripping off that Doctor Who, right? I, I didn't even think about this series until now you mentioned it. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna have to talk to my Doctor Who friends like, hey, this did you know Mountain Vasher kind of resembles uh the guy from the Boz Chronicles? Totally. I mean, th- there have been people who uh, have, you know, sort of played that game where, you know, what if Sherlock Holmes was not Sherlock Holmes? There was there was a really good um, story by uh, 
who's the guy who made the Berserker books? Fred Saberhagen? Oh, yes. Right, right, right. He, he, he did a Berserker story uh, where the Berserker, you know, goes through a time hole or time loop or whatever and ends up in Victorian England and uh, becomes a becomes Sherlock Holmes. He also did an he also did a whole bunch of Dracula novels, um, including one where Dracula talks runs into Sherlock Holmes, and we find out that Sherlock Holmes' ancestry includes vampiric ancestry. Hmm. I I know I just gave away a, that's a major reveal at the end of the book. I know I just spoiled that. Sorry, listeners. Well, you didn't even name the book, so we'd have to no. we'd have to know what you're spoiling. But but yeah. So yeah, that was the big reveal in the book that Sherlock Holmes says vampire ancestry. That's why he and Dracula get along in this book. That was like what? Yeah, I I was really impressed by this book. I I, I picked up a um another you know a modern trade uh, Conan Red Sonia. I I like Conan. I like Red Sonia. I hadn't bought any for a while because there was too many at some point, and I lost track of what they were doing. But they came out with a new trade, and I started reading it, and I was like, oh, am I crazy, or is this, like, completely inconsistent art? Am I crazy, or is the writing here just not paying any attention to actual, like, I don't know. It, it, the attention to detail is really important, and this is this is exact opposite. It's a labor of love, right? Like, there's detail in it that these guys totally were in love with what they were doing. And the characters are really interesting. I mean, I, I can't imagine that the a female prostitute character would go over as well as she as well as she did in the 80s just with modern uh sensibilities, sensibilities about, you know, female empowerment and stuff, but um I didn't find her to be, you know, too much of a caricature. She's got her own thing going on. She's uh I don't know. Probably not politically correct in some way but um it, it didn't bother me and uh i think the villains are funny the the art is really good the color's even good which i sometimes it's not i was i was trying to figure out if the color is uh and it had been recolored but i think it's just the same thing it's just been cleaned up a little bit um and yeah, uh, it's got all that stuff like, you know, hey, here's a, a story ends with a digital watch uh, in uh, 19th century England. How did that happen? Next issue, it's explained, right? Dun, dun, dun. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. 